Okay, so I'll start practicing uh, practicing responding to these questions and hope things are gonna uh, give you some help. A um, person's inquiring about stream entry. How do they know? How does he or she know they've attained stream entry? Is there a moment of realization? Uh, well, this is one of these controversial topics. Um, uh, it seems from the accounts in the in the suttas that the stream entry is a rather graduated process of the. Um, referring less and less to the personality as the centre of one's intentions. What does that mean? That means instead of acting one's normal kind of fairly impulsive, this is what I think, you know, me position, or there's a sense of the, the chitta instead refers to Dhamma, right? You know, it doesn't, it doesn't look in the book for what's, what's the mindfulness program, it just acts without that personal bias. And that seemed to be a graduated process. A stream entry is a removal of the uh, placing one's centre of one's life, centre of one's heart on the person, you know, in the person. Less identification with thoughts, less of identification with uh, emotions and the body. So identification with emotions, when an emotion happens, we really feel we are it, we're in it, we are in, we, the reactions start happening. Whereas with the stream mantra, they recognize emotion is happening, they're just, hmm, looks like things are getting stirred up here, what's that about? Hmm. You see, just a slight shift doesn't mean they don't have them, um, but they can quieten. So the stream mantra still has qualities of irritability and uh, uh, elements of sense desire, but they're now witnessing it rather than um, following it or, or identifying with it. Now in some lineages they've developed systems where they're doing particular meditation systems when they say oh, there's a particular moment when you, you have this moment called Magga, path moment and fruit moment and one fruition when you actually the fruition of stream entry and there's one moment when you're right on the edge of it and and then boom you're in um, and those are consecutive this doesn't seem to hold up in in the suttas as to how useful this is how useful any of this stuff is this this uh, terminology um, uh, take it all, uh, keep it in the back of your mind. Um, it's not really that important to know. What you want to know is whether you're suffering at all. <laughs> That's the important one. And uh, also how to properly acknowledge stress and how one builds it up unconsciously. We build up the platform for stress by building up the person. You know, and this is a tough topic is uh, life in the world often seems to demand that you be a solid person and, you know, and uh, this is setting up painting a bullseye on your chitta hit me here <laughs> uh, 
so it's not to deny there's such a experience as being a person but uh, as I will try to make more clear um, we look at the particular attitudes and energies of organization and search for solidity and security and comfort and so on quite normal uh, experiences um, and the ones that build up the sense of becoming more solid are the ones that are seductive, interesting, very much encouraged in the world, but they are painting a bullseye target on your chitta uh, because they don't work and causes suffering and stress. So instead, you know, though it seems quite elusive at first, putting much more emphasis on qualities such as goodwill, generosity, virtue, discipline, meditation, whether I feel like it or not, and, um, you know, trying to own as little as possible in this world. Mm. Yeah, to live lightly takes some of the pressure off, absolutely. I know this is not easy. Um, this is a big topic, actually. Another question, person finds their mind is quieter in the morning, sittings on retreat, is this because of not eating? Can you say something about fasting and how this can be a benefit for practice? Um, well, you know, fasting is it's got a relative term, it can mean you, you, know, you don't eat anything whatsoever, or it can mean you refrain from solids, or it can mean you have a 10-hour fast, we don't eat anything, or a 12-hour fast, we don't eat anything, um, or uh, longer. And, uh, you know, there's a point of what's balanced, which you have to sense for yourself. The Buddha took fasting to an extreme, so his body was wasted away, and he found that was not useful at all, because it didn't provide the strength. And yet the standard for the monastic order is at least 16 hours a day not eating sometimes you know 23 hours a day not eating which uh, can seem difficult but uh, yeah you get you can drink and obviously some of the time you're resting anyway and other times you're meditating and as you burn up less you know you, because your energy system certainly in monastic training is encouraged to be more like steady rather than bursting, rather than strong energy and then then relax. It's like steady. So your metabolism is not strained and you, you treat it, you don't rev up, you don't do a turbocharge. Um, this definitely seems to me that the metabolism is kept at a softer tick over rate. You don't burn so much and therefore you don't need so much food. So it's not really a deprivation, as in a moderation of one's metabolism and energy output. And that pays off for meditation, it pays off. Because if you're living in a much quieter, steady state, you don't have to deal with the kind of surge and then the slump. And most people will find that after the eating food, the body is engaged with digesting and that takes energy out of your system. You don't feel so sharp anymore. So probably recommended to eat you know 
once or twice and perhaps don't eat to satiation. In other words, have half a meal, have less, you know, a little less. So you've got some room. You don't want to overload the body with food it doesn't need. Yeah. And again, this is uh, something you, if you want to experiment with that. Because again, in our society, munching is considered fun, enjoyable, social, entertaining, something to do, and all those messages are deluded. Um, food is for sustaining the body. Uh, and as we recognize many people now, uh, experience obesity because they're eating sugary foods, junk foods. So the more you can think everything you eat is going to go into your body, what does your body want, need? And if you can, my sense is I don't, if I don't need to put anything in my body, I, I don't. <laughs> you know, air, air is good. <laughs> if you don't need to put anything in there, uh, then... Uh, you know, let your body, not the mind, let the body govern the eating, not the mind. Is body contemplation needed as some adjuncts recommend? If needed, how often? As I notice, I need to watch my mind. Uh, I'm not quite certain what you're alluding to. It may be that you're referring to the and the anatomy, like contemplating the physicality of the body, um, you know, the sort of the flesh, sinews, bones, uh, viscera, um, liquids, you know, the general kind of anatomical experience, the physical experience. And this can be helpful, uh, it um, takes away vanity, um, very much identify with just the, the outward appearance. You know, just as a membrane of skin stretched over some flesh, muscles and bones. It's extremely ephemeral, you know, extremely uh, limited view. So sometimes people imagine you're know, pulling the skin off, what do you have? Um, yeah. And so this can be used as a counteraction to when there are times that a person finds themselves kind of either fascinated with their own physical appearance or probably more commonly fascinated with other people's physical appearance, either sexually aroused or wanting to look like them. You know, she looks so good, why can't I look like her? I don't like the way I look, all this kind of stuff. Uh, and you realise it's just, you know, skin stretched over meat, flesh, tissues. So that can be helpful. Um, often I find I don't teach this a lot because I, I sense there are people have got so much mental stuff to deal with in terms of worry and fear and depression and anxiety that, that seems to always be the topics that come up. And I generally teach it in accordance with what people want to know about. It helps to, to again, it helps to undo the idea of the person being identified with this particular appearance. Mm. How to keep living with a family member whose behaviour you feel lacks integrity. Um, I think, um, as is so often the refrain in terms of being with other people, a good amount of space um, is needed. Mm. 
to not not intensely engage engage with other people it should be something that's quite careful and uh, uh, and, and mindful because you really have two karmic complexities the karmic complexities of one's own chitta with its sensitivities and and blind spots and um, um, intensities and the, the other one's jitta with her or his blind spots sensitivities and impulses and the chance of those two matching are quite unlikely <laughs> it does happen that there is a match or a reasonable match but uh, one should not expect to have a constantly agreeable matching sense with other people on everything so it's always recommended just some space so that you know you're not clinging there isn't a clinging to the other person to be something that you want them to be and uh you're not expecting too much from them that you really maintain autonomy and autonomy is not quite the same as independence. It means, yes, you are aware and you want to experience a quality of goodwill and trust and so forth with other people. You don't ignore them. Um, and you want to make sure that what you're doing is of integrity. Yeah, That your actions have integrity. Where their actions have integrity, you can't really determine. You don't have much say over that. But if you're just reacting to them, judging them, blaming them, feeling negative about them, this does you no good. Mm. Yeah. So if you, you want to check that habit to find fault with others, and I'm not saying by this that the other person doesn't have faults. Of course they have faults. But <laughs> is it possible what you find disagreeable, ignoble, inappropriate in them is something you can let pass? Yeah. Just, okay, that's hers, that's his, that's the way she is, that's the way he is. Um, I don't support that. Uh, but I'm not going to uh, get angry and upset about it. Um, you know, and that's both on account of one's practice, but realistically it also means it's best not to associate too much with the people you find yourself not in harmony with. Mm instead uh, practice sharing sharing merit with them and sharing goodwill with them at a safe distance <laughs> so you can keep letting go of that irritated that perception one has of them of, of being someone of no virtue or no integrity you know, because that perception is not good for you <laughs> yeah most important thing to remember is other people may blame, criticize us, but it's much worse if we blame and criticize them because we have to receive the results of our own actions and they have to receive the results of theirs. Mm. Question Could you share some reflections about the comprehension of sati and samadhi? as some translations have limited their scope and meanings. Well, you know, all, all words 
there is efforts every word is is an effort to try to bring something communicate something uh, which is often a profound quality of mind you try and put that inside five or six letters as one word and it's it's risky so generally with these Pali words and particularly when you have a word is concocted in a Pali language is an ancient Indian culture and you take that and you plant it in a Malaysian or Singapore or Australian or Canadian culture and it's it's a different culture so the word doesn't really hit the same place and um, with sati the general standard is mindfulness and so ideally the way you 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 want to study these things you look into the suttas and you find the number of occasions when this is used and you try to look at the word how it sits in context hmm what's happening when they use this word what what do you think he's referring to if you look at it in different situations ah it seems to be something about attention and uh, uh, definition of one of the definitions of mindfulness is a person is mindful they remember the meaning of things said and done long ago one is mindful and remembers the meaning of things said and done long ago the mind can retain an impression and linger in it can retain an impression and linger in it hmm. so Characteristic, do we notice often sights, sounds, touches, just boom, 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 and they're gone. Mindfulness retains an impression. So in a way it's a kind of a, a concentration, although it's, it's the mind stabilising on a particular experience. And so we realise, well, the best thing to do is to, to place mindfulness on supportive experiences such a thing as wrong mindfulness when one bears in mind something that's unwholesome it's obsessive wrong mindfulness or right mindfulness is guided by deep attention to find a suitable topic to place one's mindfulness on and uh, so then it, it, the mind then absorbs and reflects upon that which one is mindful of it's a fundamental tool for meditation. Yeah, mm. it's not fixation because one is bears it in mind, so that the mind can ponder, can look into it, can investigate it. So mindfulness uh, is uh, sometimes we see the word dhamma vijaya, investigation occurs with mindfulness or samphajanya seeing things truly with mindfulness so well, this means this phenomenon is of the nature to change as i'm witnessing it i'm noticing it it fluctuates and varies yeah and i can notice there are certain degrees of unwholesome or wholesome attitudes that are happening and you keep relinquishing so if you're practicing mindfulness you use it to relinquish dissonant experiences and keep bearing in mind the Dhamma. This is where it's not just um, a, a tool for attention. So right mindfulness is a Dhamma practice, means that it's not just holding something in mind, it's holding the Dhamma in mind. 
right? Right? Holding the Dhamma in mind. So you so you basically you're holding in mind, bearing in mind the sense of does this lead to stress or not to stress? Is this wholesome or unwholesome? That's kind of primary setting. Yeah, that's the primary setting. So Dhamma practice, right mindfulness comes from right view and right intention. So your primary setting for mindfulness is I is this worth bearing in mind? Am I bearing in mind with a sense of is this subject to stress or comfortable or does it give rise to unwholesome states? So that wisdom in mindfulness as a Dhamma practice. So it's not just a mode of maintaining attention, it's also a mode conducive to the Eightfold Path. Samadhi means often translated as concentration. I have reservations about that term. Uh, because concentration in terms of the world is often associated with concentrating on something, like concentrating on a problem, concentrating on a project, concentrating on a detail of one's work. So the focus is sharp, narrow and intense, concentrating on an object. And if you look into the suttas and you review these things, uh, you see that, that samadhi doesn't, mean that. Um, it's, uh, it's not concentration on an object. It refers to the mind being settled and composed. Hmm? So the mind is settled, not distracted, not shaking, not sinking. It's settled and composed and still, quiet. That is samadhi. Now, how does that arrive? You might say, does it arise through, through focusing intensely on, on an object? Uh, and not really. It arises through being mindful of an object. So it arises from right view, contemplating thoughts, feelings, perceptions, bodily sensations, energies, and so forth, with this mindful wisdom to sense what is stressful, not stressful, what leads to peace, what leads away from it. And through that process, mindfulness begins to clean the hindrances from the mind, cleans the hindrances, cleans out the obstructions, cleans out the dross. When it's it's, it's cleaned out the dross, the mind becomes bright and pure and settles. This is called samadhi and it's a happy state. It's a pleasant state. So when the five hindrances, ill will, sense, desire, dullness, restlessness and doubt are removed from the mind through this process, the mind settles, feels pleased, stabilises in itself and this is called samadhi. If one experiences rapture during meditation, should contemplation be undertaken during or after this state has passed? Uh, Well, rapture that's born from um, meditation or disengagement is the sense of the coolness and the ease and the elimination of the hindrances. There are different ways in which the experience called rapture can occur. Piti 
is the Pali word, and it means there's a certain uplifted, buoyant state. Mind feels happy, and also there's, there's a kind of like a bodily vigour. One feels bright, you know, uplifted. And this can occur in worldly terms. You go to a, listen to some music, and it's really wonderfully done. You feel bright, lifted. You go for a walk in the forest or something, and you go down this magnificent view, and you feel, oh, fantastic. And you're uplifted by the, the, um, the sight or the sound. This is called worldly rapture. And um, unfortunately it passes when, when the sight or sound stops. So more useful is the rapture that's not born of sense contact, but rapture that's born just through the mind settling back into itself rather than being engaged with sense contact, rather than running out and um, making more of it or pushing away and fearing it. It's just a sense of that's a sight, that's a sound, that's a thought. Mm -hmm. There it is. And more and more we can linger in that disengaged state. <laughs> it doesn't sound very attractive when I put it like this, but it really is extremely fruitful. <laughs> you know, it really is what meditation is about, finding that place where you're not hooked up. And the relief. Because uh, everything sense world is so moving so fast that your mind is always doing, and just to not have that happening. Uh, oh, a sense of relief, piti. Um, so, the skillful use of piti is to not get too excited by it. If it's becoming too exciting. Uh, so you lose, you're getting sort of a bit too um, over-energized. Bring your attention into the body. So just imagine, as the Buddha uses this image, mixing soap powder in water in a sponge. So the, the, sat, the, the piti saturates the body. And the body kind of helps to create some ballast and keep you grounded and of course you can notice uh, what particular um, practices uh, arose that, that, that generated piti, what caused the hindrances to, to decline, that's important to notice you know, and notice also what piti makes available, what rapture makes available for you a sense of uh, stability and ease, um, and notice any clinging to it, and how that generates stress and becomes an obstacle. Person finds how difficult to see dukkha in sense pleasures. Well, I know it's difficult to let go of them, but uh, well, you learn. <laughs> If you uh, feel the the uh, the endless thirst, well, you have to have more. You know, it's, it's pleasant for a while, and then it passes, and then uh, something else. Mm -hmm.
So that's the insatiable nature of it. Now, generally, the way the mind is is pretty simple, that what's pleasing and most long-lasting, it will, it will go for. So you have to find another source of pleasure. So the mind says, oh, you could have oh, this one's better. And that's the strategy of, of Dhamma, the pleasure of um, meditation, pleasure of, as I've just mentioned, pleasure of the disengaged mind, the pleasure of feeling contented, the pleasure of self-respect, the pleasure of good friends, the pleasure of having a purposeful, meaningful life. All these have different levels of, of agreeable um, qualities to them that don't burn up the mind. They're not, not addictive. And so one is encouraged to cultivate Dhamma in line with pleasure. So, more questions about um, eating. Should eight precepts be limited to special training days? Um, I think it's really good to do that if you can. I mean, your working life is it can be challenging to to keep these refraining from eating afternoon because you may have to be working all morning. They won't give you a break until two. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, but then if you do have the opportunity, say on, and it needn't be necessarily the observance days, it could be okay, my weekend, I've got some spare time, I'm not pressurized to work, then I can, you know, I can keep the eight precepts on a Saturday or a Sunday or something like that. It's not, um, not a fixed dogma. Everybody would use the lunar observance days. That was the way the Indian calendar worked, and it'd be quite common for people to to uh, undertake some kind of religious practice. But so now you get the seven-day week and working week, which crashes through that. Person has the issue of entitlement, wanting other people not to have entitlement. I think I am right. It should be fair. I should be praised, etc. Uh, well, this is certainly plenty of suffering in that. <laughs> yeah. Mm. You should not seek to be measured by the world, the worldly opinions, views how good you are, not good you are, worthwhile, ignored, praise, it's it's just it's just too much suffering. Um, one should recollect one's virtues on a daily basis. If you've kept five, eight precepts that very few people in the world do, and if you've managed to do that, it requires discipline and restraint and clarity and a sense of purpose. And just notice those qualities that are present. Mm-hmm. Um, and the results of them. And they should give you happiness. As long as we approach life from being a person, it's not very satisfying at all. Yeah. Because the person is essentially very much created by social contact. I don't mean 
you know, I know you have a body and you have a heart and you know, this and the other, but the personality is something that develops through other people's contact. You know, when you're a little child, you don't have much personality, but it starts being shaped by the approval and disapproval of other people. So you learn how to negotiate in order to get on with other people. You know, that's and how to organize and how to be part of the group. So you start to adjust your behavior to fit in with the rest of the group. That's normal. You start to pick up the signals of what other people are doing and how to respond to that. That's normal. Mm. You start to pick up the signals they give you that tell you you're doing something wrong or they don't like and you respond to that. Yeah. And you start to plan what will give you the results whereby you'll be accepted and pleased. Um, other people will be welcoming to you. So you start to shape your actions to fit that. This is all very understandable. But it's a bit like being a uh, somebody's pet, <laughs> you know. When you uh, you, know, you lose your autonomy. Mm. Mm. Now it doesn't mean you want to be gross and rude and don't care about anybody else, but uh, you realise that if you're looking for your self-esteem based upon the measurements and views of other people. It's, it's you, you know, you're looking in the wrong place. Some will like, some won't like. Some will like you but don't mention it because they think you know already. Yeah. Some will think you're great but not, not say anything about it. Um, and some people will not notice you and some people will probably dislike you or feel jealous of you or feel all kinds of things. And so it gets very confusing because you can't keep ducking and shaping yourself to fit everybody else. Views and opinions. So what, what do you take refuge in? You take refuge in your own integrity and you know, acknowledge your, your faults, but make an effort to notice what is a fault in yourself. Yeah, and don't judge other people. It doesn't do you any good. You know, whether they're having a good time or not, you feeling it's not fair is painful, isn't it? Directly speaking, it's painful. And it sets up the notion that things should be fair. As far as I can see, things are not fair. I don't think fair, it's a, it's a lovely idea, and one would search for more equality and equivalence, but basically social world is not fair. People get advantage and privilege, criminal people get power, um, people with low integrity get lots of money. Um, it's not fair. But one thing is fair. You get the results of your actions, of your karma. That's what counts. That's very fair. But you can't see it from the outside. So if your actions, if you're finding fault with other people and feeling jealous, and then look at the results of that. Just leave it alone. Leave it alone. Someone asks about, does one need to be in a monastery to speak to and receive guidance from a teacher? 
as the need arises from the teacher's perspective as well as the student's perspective. Uh, well, I think there are many teachers in the world, and they're not all monasteries, and not that many monks are teachers or nuns, they're not all teachers. They're companions, they're people working out their karma, um, and many of them feel that the monastery itself is a teacher, that is you you learn from looking at what people are doing, you're getting regular talks and so forth, so they don't, but they don't necessarily regard themselves as having the, the skills or the training or whatever it takes to work on somebody else's um, stuff. I mean, so any monastery is likely they will have some opportunity to ask questions, um, but not just whenever you feel like it, it might be once a week or once a month or something and the chance of getting a personal one-to-one -one interview not that great because often there's lots of stuff going on um, not that many teachers have the capacity to dedicate time to individuals if you are a teacher you might have teaching 200 people or something like that you can't take time to take on that that many individuals mm. But um, like listening to talks and thinking things through and asking relevant questions when the occasion arises and remembering and taking a little bit and remembering and bearing it in mind. Uh, so even at the time of the Buddha, the chance of meeting the Buddha weren't that good. So you might, you might only see him once in your lifetime, once or twice in your lifetime and you have to be mindful, look at the structures of the teaching and work it out. Mm. And but otherwise, there are lots of you know, retreat centres where you can go do a retreat, you generally get some degree of, of interview and one-to-ones or group interview for guidance. Mm. Clarity arises due to causes and conditions on a daily basis, what to look out for or check mind states and five spiritual faculties yes um, if when there is uh, release or um, comfort or contentment or clarity the mind feels comfortable it's good to investigate what what caused that uh, and also what causes it to decline and this is when you start to get some familiarity with the Buddhist terminologies um, the terms such as um, four establishments of mindfulness, the five spiritual faculties, the four paths to success, and there's a whole list of these. So it can seem like you're just learning a language, but actually these refer to distinct spiritual qualities such as motivation, chanda, five spiritual faculties, are anything, um, <laughs> sadda faith, openness, virya, energy, sati, mindfulness, samadhi, collectedness, steadiness of mind, firm composure, and panya, discernment. So these are one cluster of factors and noticing when they're present, when they're absent, when they're absent, how to restore most important one to restore is faith. This means 
because we're often finding ourselves lost or confused and therefore if we go into doubt you know I can't do this I can't make it you know then we give up but the idea is when you feel challenged then wait a minute bring up your faith your sense of there can be a way through this suffering is to be understood not just to be feeling you failed and despair suffering is something you've got to have a faith you, you can penetrate it understand it virya means that faith as a specific result because of the faith my energy goes to investigating that and bringing up the faculties that will support dismantling obstructions mindfulness one bears the dhamma in mind okay you bear the teachings in mind things are impermanent conditions are impermanent conditions are unsatisfactory craving is to be abandoned uh, personality view is an obstruction you bear these teachings in mind and you bring that to bear upon the particular problem you're experiencing so oh yes that's because I was identifying with that uh-huh. how did that happen so and then samadhi this always means that the mind has dropped problem a hindrance and it it settles so and then that sense and then then that makes the mind firm samadhi is food for the mind and discernment always necessary again to keep reviewing skillful unskillful states this is a skillful state this is an unskillful state put aside the person person identification person package just say this was a skillful state this was an unskillful state you yeah. rather than i am this i am that and this this kind of pattern leads to stress and suffering and this pattern leads out of it you yeah. so you, you start to assess things uh, in these terms and this is the way you really make a, a lot of progress on the path so I'll offer that for your reflection this morning. May some Dhamma reach and be a benefit to you.